I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Our guest tonight has been all around the world. He is the former provincial superior of the southern province of the Society of the Divine Word. And he is presently pastor of St. John the Evangelist Parish in Gulfport, Mississippi, great little town. And he's here tonight to talk about his religious orders ministry among African Americans and their very important work in establishing the first seminary in the United States specifically geared to preparing African American men for the priesthood in the culturally and spiritually segregated southern U.S. Going back to the shadows of the Civil War era, the time after Reconstruction through the Jim Crow and other historic racial events of the late 19th, early 20th century. So please welcome tonight's guest, Father Michael Summers. Father. Father Mitch. Great pleasure. to have you with us. Thank you so much. I mentioned that you'd been quite in quite a few places. You've worked in quite a number of countries and done work in a lot of different continents. Been around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me your Irish, you know, uh, blarney here. You've been, you worked a long time in Ecuador. I did, yeah. My first, uh, I call it my first love. Yeah. My first mission was Ecuador, South America, after ordination. I spent about 18 years down there. So yeah. yeah. Best years of my life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but you've, in, within your own community, you've been to Africa and Asia, of course, from Ireland. More on a, I was saying, one of our international teams of the congregation, mm -hmm. spirituality, psychology team. and. So we go and spend time giving retreats, seminars, workshops to our three congregations around the world. So it was about nine years literally traveling, living out of a, suit, a suitcase for that. I have a strong affection for your society, the Divine Word uh, Fathers. Um, as a little boy, I used to receive a magazine that they sent to young men thinking about priesthood, boys. The world, uh, the, yeah. The, yeah, it was the uh, Future Priest Club. Right. And I joined that when I was about nine or 10, you know, fairly early on. And uh, I used to go to your seminary up in Technia, Illinois for mass, that sure. beautiful chapel made by some of the German brothers. That's uh, right. Beautifully decorated. Technia Towers. It's a great, great place. And, um, I know that your community is a very international missionary order. That is what you were found to do. Tell us a little bit about your founder. Our founder is probably a very little-known saint, Saint Arnold Jansen. Mm -hmm. uh, that was part of his own intention. He never really wanted to promote himself, but he felt God was the one who had to be promoted and known. And that was really our mission, or his his vision and mission was to go where God was not yet known or where the gospel had been inadequately preached or known. Mm -hmm. And so he, he founded a, the first German-speaking uh, order, international missionary order, for the German-speaking countries in Europe. 
and it was a time of the Kultur camp when Bismarck was over Germany and was the persecution of the Catholic Church. Yeah, he, Bismarck so wanted to unite Germans around German identity. It that's was right. Uh, nationalism was his ideology was. and the, 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 the nation was superior to God and the church. Absolutely. And so he, he was also very much against the Catholic faith, yes. closed parishes, closed convents, closed schools. And so that you could say that the clergy and religious were unemployed in Germany. Mm -hmm. Father Arnold was a young diocesan priest and he had read the chronicles and the missions thanks to the influence of his dad for many years. And he had that sense of what are we all doing here with our arms folded when there's so many countries around the world that have never heard the name God or know God in any way. And he, he felt the call more and more to do something about it. And he approached bishops, he approached priests that why don't they open an international seminary and send, you know, many of the young priests, those that wanted to go elsewhere. And he spent years uh, trying to do that. He got a lot of kickback. People laughed at him, told him it was the wrong time in history, told him it was the wrong place and told him that he was the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> and the more they criticized him, the more he, he just gave himself to God. And he had such a profound relationship with God and he had so many reasons for giving up because nobody believed in him. But he felt he could not turn his back on God and he felt the call so, so strong. And so eventually he crossed the River Rhine went into the Netherlands because he couldn't open a mission house in Germany and he opened one in, in the Netherlands. And it was a, at the side of the, at one of the rivers there where the, uh, every, the, the boats would come, the farmers would come with their products and it was an old stable for feeding horses. And that became the first international seminary. And yeah. so he founded the Order of the Divine Word. This is not the first time that this nationalistic craze, an evil craze, uh, has increased the missionary work of the church. When the French did this during That's their right. revolution, they drove many missionaries all over the world. That's right. And when Bismarck did it, he sent a lot of German Catholics to America. Exactly. All you go over. to Cincinnati, Milwaukee, you go to Kansas. These are people pushed out by Bismarck. And sure. They just have done wonderfully well here in the United States. We're That's so true. glad to have them. At the time of his death, we, we were about 1,500 missionaries in 21 countries around the world. And today with our three congregations, we're 10,000 strong in 86 countries worldwide. Because you have one congregation of sisters who are missionaries and teachers, right? Yeah, we have two, we're like a family of two girls and a boy. <laughs> so there's two sister congregations. One is the Holy Spirit Missionary Sisters. And then we have the Holy Spirit Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. They're sort of the praying they are a you know, contemplative group. 24-7 before the Blessed Sacrament. And they're popularly known as the Pink Sisters because of their ha beautiful habit. Yes. Yes, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, not many orders wear pink, but they do. And they do, yeah. They spend beautiful. the time praying. Now, 
this uh, part of this story is that as far as Father Arnold was concerned, and it's still the, the case in states like Mississippi and Alabama, that these are, the United States has a number of dioceses that are mission dioceses. You know, you know, you go up north That's and it's right. well established, but sure. Alabama is 3% Catholic, Mississippi probably about the same. Sure. And some parts of Louisiana, Louisiana are very Catholic, Florida. others are not. Yeah. So there's missionary territory here. Very much so. That's how your order got to be here in the United States? It was. Well, we started actually in Chicago and it was one province. And then gradually as we grew and we came south, we went to the west coast as well. We have now three provinces in the United States, mm -hmm. the northeast, then the western province, California, and the southern province. Mm -hmm. And as our missionaries came down south, you know, after, they, after the Civil War, there was about maybe of the 8 million black Americans in the south, about uh, 150,000 of those were Catholic. And most of those were in the city. So we found that they, there was very little evangelization done in the rural areas mm -hmm. of the black communities. Mm -hmm. And there was very few Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. And that got the attention of our missionaries and we began to establish churches and schools. And that's really where it started. Mm -hmm. it began to open schools for the uh, black communities. And we started in Marigold in Mississippi in Jackson, in Greenville, in Meridian, in Vicksburg, and slowly but surely they began to, you know, the numbers began to increase. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of difficulties at the time, a lot of persecution, a lot of violence. In fact, the first parish we took in um, Marigold, uh, Father Heck was, had to leave in the middle of the night because his life was in danger. You know, he was being persecuted. And that mission failed. That mission closed down. But that's, uh, what, what was the persecution about? What, why, why would there be opposition? Uh, because of the laws of segregation. And because, he, you know, we were coming and it was to, that these people would have a right to education, would have, mm. you know, been able to evangelize, build churches and schools that were at that time probably more uh, exclusively for African-Americans. Because, see. yeah. And, and so there was a lot, and people, yeah, they took exception to that. There, before the emancipation of slaves, uh, there had been laws in some of the states against teaching African-Americans how to read or write. Precisely. That, that, have been laws and uh, some of that culture apparently didn't die out so easily. Uh, that's right, that's right. And uh, so yeah, in a matter of 10 years as the schools were being built and you know, our Holy Spirit missionary sisters, they were really very, very important. They ran most of our schools. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, the teachers, principals, they were very, very good at what they were doing. And over a 10-year period, we probably had about 1,000 students going through our schools. Mm -hmm. And as the time went on, uh, 
our missionaries also began to notice that there was very little, if no, conversions whatsoever from the parents to Catholicism. And so, you know, they began to ask the questions why. And one of the reasons, again, was unlike their own Protestant churches, where they had leaders, they had ministers that were black, in the Catholic Church, there was no reference. There was no black priest, there was no black leaders. And so the whole idea, you know, became about and matured and they began to bring it to our superior general in Rome as to having a black clergy, you know, and to why not that, that they, the parishes, the schools needed a black clergy. And so they, the idea matured. Again, there was a lot of opposition from the church itself Mm -hmm. from many of the bishops, they were totally against the idea. And it was at the end, it was the Vatican that intervened and um, supported the society to do this work that was very important, the mission and the evangelization of the black communities in the South. About when was that Vatican uh, intervention? About what period? We started in Marigold in 1905. And so about 10 or 12 years later was when the idea came to push forward. Uh, I think it was 1915. When so we that'd be in the, the time of Pope uh, Benedict the 15th. I believe so. Yeah, yeah I believe that'd be so. his time. Yes. And so we, the, the Vatican were, really gave us a push and yeah. told us that was really instrumental. It was the will of God. That's, you know, it, it's interesting to me because it was in 1942, and I'm, you know, during the Nazi occupation of Italy, that Pope Pius XII wrote a letter to all the American bishops and told them, you as bishops have to take leadership in ending segregation in the church. Uh, that they, you know, that didn't come from their own initiative. Of course. Some bishops, of course. Sure. But, you know, a, as a body, they needed that push That's from right. the Vatican. No, it was very, very difficult at the time. There was many reasons to give up, sure. a lot of persecution, a lot of violence. But at the same time, I mean, it was just the zeal and the, the support of uh, the people, you know, got around our missionaries. But, yeah, I think we were very disappointed at the time of the, the lack of support from the church. And we were not the first ones, of course. We have to, the Josephites were there before us, serving the, the black communities in the south. Also, uh, St. Catherine Drexel and her order. Yes. They were right. also instrumental and helped us. So they, were, they were out there before we were. Yes, St. Catherine Drexel... Uh, came from uh, one of the wealthiest Catholic That's families right. in America, and she used her inheritance to start schools for Native Americans and for African she Americans. In know, including the seminary in Bay St. Louis. If it wasn't for St. Catherine Drexel, it probably wouldn't exist. Financially, she helped us hugely with her family inheritance. Nice. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is an important part of history. I, I, I have a little quote I'd like to read from Pope Pius XII. His very important uh, encyclical, Mystici Corporis Christi, the mystical body of Christ. He wrote that again during the war yes. in June of 1943. 
And he said in that, that quote, the church has a divinely given unity by which all men of every race are united to Christ in the bond of brotherhood. And this is consistent with the papal teaching one, you know, once the, the, you know, the, the papacy and Europeans began to discover, uh, you know, African exploration and came in contact and some Europeans were enslaving blacks, the papacy said that is contrary to God, to enslave people on sure. the basis of race. Sure. And, you know, to, uh, and it was always put under excommunication and it was because they have equal dignity. Absolutely. This is, and that, you know, 1537 with Pope Paul III and so on. Sure. But that teaching had a tough time getting to the folks. It was. That, that it just did not sink in. It was tested with fire, definitely, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, still in 43 and 42, you know, Pius XII was pushing hard. Well, that was really, it was only in 1948 when they, the bishops actually declared and made a statement about the acceptance of exactly. the yes. uh, black clergy, that it was acceptable. That was about almost 20 years after we opened the seminary. Yes. Yeah, that's, took a while, but again, they, they were prompted by the papacy to do that. Absolutely, yes. Um, also, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the seminary, because uh, I've been there, I used to teach there. Yes, uh, so I believe. Back in, in the uh, mid-90s. I'd like to mention something from a, a book called In the Light of the Word that was written by Ernest Brandevee. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's, he wrote, for years, St. Augustine's seminary was practically the only place in the United States where a young black man who felt he had a vocation to the priesthood could go to test his vocation. Because of the pioneering work of this effort, other seminaries and religious orders began to accept and even actively recruit candidates from the African-American community. By its existence and because of the success of its ordinands, St. Augustine's had accomplished the historic work God willed of it. That's really remarkable, sure. that uh, impact. So tell me about the founding of the seminary. Because it's 100 years now, right? Yes, uh, it was uh, 100 years in last September. It was founded in 1923. Mm -hmm. uh, we began a, like a minor seminary college in Greenville in Mississippi. And after two or three years, again, the lack of support, the threats of violence, we had to move it from Greenville to Bay St. Louis. And thanks again to St. Catherine Drexel and her order and financially, we, we were donated a big plot of land. Mm -hmm. And there was more, again, closer to Louisiana, there was more Catholics down here. Mm -hmm. So it was much more receptive, the, the, the whole area. Mm -hmm. And that's where we started in 1923. And yes, it was the first and only 
seminary to accept African-American candidates to the priesthood in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. There were priests obviously before the Josephites and other orders, but they had been trained abroad or came in from abroad. Yes, the, uh, I've had the number of programs about Father Tolton, Father Augustine, also Augustine, yes. uh, Tolton, who uh, was the first African-American priest that we know of, and he had to go to Rome, That's right. study in Rome to, yes. to get ordained the priest. There was no possibility otherwise, yeah. But there, there were uh, the first four fathers that finished seminary there were fathers Anthony Bourget, uh, Maurice Rousseff, uh, Francis Wade, and Vincent, I can't read his name, um, but there was a father, Vincent, as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, they were the first four fathers that were ordained from there. They were the first four. Again, it was a huge event. And even at their ordination, there was also pro protests. Is and, that right? Yes. Who was protesting? People were not happy that there was going to be an, an African-American clergy. And not only that, but even in, we still had difficulties in placement. Many, many bishops would not take them in their diocese. That's, I heard that from some of the priests. And it took a lot of time and a lot of uh, communication and negotiating. And eventually, uh, the Bishop of Lafayette, um, we opened a parish, the Immaculate Heart. We were still there today in Lafayette. And that's where they spent the first three or four years together, you know, under a, a white pastor. And in those three or four years, gradually, they were able to move out into their own parishes. Mm -hmm. But they, the struggle continued for many years. And for it wasn't only the, the white population, also, the, it was interesting, the African-American population, they also had to be formed anew to accept that it was okay to have a black clergy. Because obviously, being a priest was, was white. And this was a, a mind shift to accept black clergy into the African-American communities. That took quite an adjustment. And some of the priests also had told me that there was resistance because they were Catholic. Other African-Americans who were not Catholic had learned a certain anti-Catholicism right. as they went in their training. So they got opposition from African-American non-Catholic sure. clergy as well. Absolutely. And of course, we have to remember the laws of segregation, you know, they were still up and running. Oh, still, a lot of them were still being written. That's right. You know, so the, it was going against the tide in every way, you know, yeah. just pushing the boundaries. And again, our founder was instrumental. It's uh, it, really, it wasn't something out of the box. Uh, Divine Word Missionary is what we do. Yeah. go where the church hasn't gone before, pushing the boundaries. Yes. And it's, his belief was God is an all-inclusive God. Yep. Nobody can be excluded from God's embrace. Exactly. And that's our exactly. the witness we try to bring. Well, there was a, a book called Desegregating the Altar. You familiar yes. with that? Yes. Yeah, it, it's, a, the, it's subtitled The Josephites and the Struggles for Black Priests from yes. 1871 to 1960. Yes. Uh, the author is Stephen J. Oakes, 
and he wrote that first the church itself had a weak and very vulnerable position in the South. And there was a lot of anti-Catholicism. The Ku Klux Klan was as was just about as anti-Catholic as it was anti-Jewish yes. and anti-black. Yes. So there was a lot of reluctance by church leaders in the South to challenge these racial norms. Or again, as you mentioned, of Jim course. Crow was... Yes, we cannot norm. underestimate the opposition that was out there. That's why it's, it's really remarkable that they achieved what they did in, in such a short time. And there's another element too that Catholics tend to accommodate to local custom. Yes. You know, we, we adapt to, you know, we're, in many ways we're trained to do that. You know, when we go to India, we learn Indian customs, you eat Indian food or sure. Chinese or whatever culture, and you adapt to the culture as much as you can, but this was adapting to an evil element of segregation. Sure. And then another point that Oakes brings out is that there were deep-seated psychosexual fears that black men would be unable to maintain celibacy as priests. There was, a, a, just, there was just a myth that they could not be celibate. So there was that. And then also um, the missionary approach to blacks that treated them like passive children instead of recognizing them as smart adults Absolutely. with full potential to do the same thing that anybody else could do and be real, you sure. know, equal partners. That was missing. Absolutely. And that wasn't just outside. That was the church itself had those beliefs. Yep. That they were not capable, capable of the clerical status. Yep. Yep. The, this, you know, was something of understanding uh, African-Americans or, or um, you know, people of African descent as just being inferior. That was put into law. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, all these factors, yes, yeah. you know, seem to come into play. Y'all, with St. Augustine's, completely bucked that trend, all those trends, and did a, a wonderful job of, you know, having sure. met a sure. lot of the graduates, you I mean, know, when I taught there. These were courageous, absolutely bright men who, I look to them as heroes. Not only did they book the law, but, you know, they, many of the priests became very active in promoting civil rights. They had mm -hmm. some great achievements. It wasn't just a legacy of evangelization, of desegregation, but also of the achievements in civil rights. Yep. And also the legacy of the impact on the community in general. Yeah. It had a huge impact. Many, of course, went through the seminary, didn't become priests, but they, they went out into the community, they became professionals. One of the beautiful things I, I experimented at, at the centennial was uh, the amount of people that came back whose uncles, whose grandfathers, whose fathers had gone through the seminary. And there was that sense of pride, that sense of what they themselves had brought to their lo local communities through their profession, all the education they received, that sense of, uh, again, continuing to, to work with civil rights, with promoting the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so beautiful. 
There's yeah. so much that was going out there. Again, we have the legacy of nine bishops came from the St. Augustine Seminary. The first one was Bishop Perry, who became the, he was the auxiliary bishop in New Orleans. Now we still, thank God, have two bishops alive, you know, the former bishop of Beaumont, uh, Curtis Guillory, and the former bishop of Memphis, uh, Terry Stibe. Yeah. You know, wonderful, wonderful men. I mean, just so, it's a wonderful legacy, but nine bishops came from the seminary, not counting all the many priests and brothers. Yep, this is uh, something that, you know, uh, sadly, it should not have had to have happened that way, but it did, Sure. you know, and what's the impressive part is the way that your community had the vision to go against all these obstacles and trends and culture and begin this process of treating people as brothers in Christ. You know, these are, sure. these, we're, you know, we're happy to have them as bishops Absolutely. over us. This is what we do. Sure. And, you know, learning from them as great leaders yes. is also what we do. And again, it was part of the wider vision of our founder. And, you know, I think that's why our missionaries at the time brought that to a very specific situation in the south of the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were living, living that charism and it's, thank God, you know, they were able to do it. It's wonderful. One of the things that I think is important too is that at this time we can look back on that and be somewhat perplexed. Like, how could they think this way? Why would they? But that kind of question indicates there's been a big shift, not complete, but a huge shift in culture, that the Jim Crow laws are all gone. And there, there's there are difficulties, there still is bigotry at times, but it can't be put into law. Sure. And the, the changes in cultural attitude are pretty thorough. Th yeah. th I'd say throughout the South, sure, uh, as well as up North. Yes. No, it's very true. Uh, obviously, I think there's, you know, challenges remain, but I, I think it's something that we have to, you know, again, keep the picture. God is an all-inclusive God, mm -hmm. and that everybody in God's eyes is equal. And, you know, I'm in a, a multicultural church at the moment. I love it because it's like so many different faces, colors, languages, cultures, and yet we're all around the same altar. We're all worshiping the same God. Yeah. We're all brothers and sisters. And, you know, it's, it's just something so beautiful. It's a, the sharing of, of gifts, you know, and each one we're enriched when we share with somebody that's different. Say, difference should never separate. A difference is beautiful. Yeah. Difference should bring us together. That's very often it was put out there as the opposite, you know, that we have nothing in common. On the contrary, it's beautiful. I remember one time walking into the sacristy at the Holy Sepulchre uh, Church in Jerusalem, and uh, I asked if I could, you know, find a place to celebrate Mass, uh, a private Mass, 
I said, well, nothing's open, but there's a German priest celebrating his first mass inside the tomb. And if it's okay with him, join him. So I speak enough German to, to do that. Sure. And then he said, well, we're going to do the readings in French. You can <laughs> join us, but there's some French nuns coming. So, so that's no problem. And then this Italian joined us. And about the middle of the mass, it hit me very hard. Here we are in, inside the tomb of Jesus Christ from which he rose from the dead. And 50 years before that, all of our fathers were trying to kill each other. That's right. Christ made that have no difference. Absolutely. We were focused, and this applies to all the racial, ethnic sure. differences. We need to take a little break. Uh, we want to come back. If any of you have any questions, or comments, we ask you to uh, please call in and we'll be back with you in about two minutes. Welcome back. We are speaking to Father Michael Summers of the Society of the Divine Word, the SVD Fathers. And if you'd like to learn more about the work of the Southern Province of the Society of the Divine Word and their ministry among African Americans, you can go to divineword-uss.org. Divine Word dash uss.org and find out more about the kind of work that they're doing. Tell us a little bit more um, about some of the present work that you have. Again, as I mentioned, uh, Father Mitch, we're all over the United States, but our southern province over the years that we're here now stretches from South Florida, all the states along the Gulf of Mexico, up to, to Texas, mm -hmm. uh, including Arkansas as well. And uh, we're about 15, 16 different nationalities of our 65 missionaries down here south in different parishes. We help uh, primarily our local bishops with minority groups or a specialized ministry where we are called to do that. And we're we live in mixed international communities ourselves. Uh, you know, I've never lived in a community of only Irish missionaries. It's, uh, you know, it can do your head in at times, but it's, a, it's also immensely enriching and beautiful. You're challenged, but I think challenged to become a better person. And we believe that that's already, without, without doing anything, that's already a sign of God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's how God wants us all to be in that we can get on, we can share each other's gifts, we can become better people through each other and open up to the differences that make mm -hmm. us and enrich us. 
And so obviously it brings us challenges, but it's very rewarding. And that's why we love going into, you know, African-Americans, we're Vietnamese parishes, many multicultural parishes. Two and you have a lot of uh, uh, Hispanic, Spanish-speaking folks in your own parish, correct? Uh, we, I do, yeah. Uh, increasingly, many bishops are looking towards us to help out in Hispanic ministry. Of all our parishes across the South presently, just over two-thirds are still African-American parishes. It's part of our identity. We feel very strong about it. And, but also the other third are between our multicultural parishes, Hispanic parishes, Vietnamese parishes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what is, you know, I don't know if you, if you have uh, stats on this or data. Um, what about the number of African-Americans who are studying for the priesthood now? Like in the South, not only Anglo-Americans, Afro-Americans, the vocations have gone declined drastically, mm -hmm. uh, very unfortunately. We, as of a few years ago, presently we have no African-American priest in active ministry in the South. Well, well actually, but, well, that's, it's, it's, it's not true. It was true up to a year ago, and we just got a, a new missionary, African-American born in the United States, who came a year ago. So that, there has been a few vocations over the last few years from around the United States, African-Americans, which we're really, really grateful for. But there's been a lapse of 20 years or more where there wasn't any vocations from mm -hmm. African-American. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Africans Yes. Yeah, all over the United States, we see African missionaries who are coming to the United States uh, from many parts of Africa. Yes. Nigeria, of course, a lot. It's a large Catholic population there. Sure. Uh, but also uh, East Africa, South Africa, yeah. they, they come from all over. So we have quite a few sure. of them. African priests, yeah. But we, we don't have as many African Americans. No. Yeah. yeah, no more than, I think, Western culture in no more than Ireland. We're mm -hmm. a species in extinction, and yeah. Irish priests. Yeah. Unfortunately, no vocations much there either. What are we going to laugh at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, it's what's extraordinary in what were previously mission countries, mission territory. For our congregation, that's where all the vocations are coming from. Yes. You know, our biggest... Uh, Recruits, recruits are coming presently from Indonesia, the Philippines, India, Vietnam, the Republic of Congo, Ghana, Kenya. Mm -hmm. You know, it's beautiful. And they're now evangelizing Europe and parts of the United States. So, you know, God always has his plan. Yeah, it's, it really is a remarkable process. Yes. Uh, because, for instance, I've seen a lot of African priests working wonderfully in Italy, and I, there's, I saw a few in Germany, not so many. I, I didn't see as many in Germany, but I saw uh, a lot in Italy, and I'm sure there are uh, plenty. It's been a long time since I've been to Germany. But it, it's, you know, uh, the Western nations uh, don't seem to be catching the sense of vocation right. to the priesthood. Ireland used to have some big seminaries, but not 
Not anymore, right? Not anymore. It's uh, dwindling very fast, unfortunately. Again, we have a, a lot of clergy from Africa, India, different countries going to evangelize and keep the parishes, but very, very, very few vocations from the country itself. Mm -hmm. So th this is, and as I look back on the history of a place like Ireland and other places, oftentimes it was the um, religious orders, the, the monks in Ireland especially, who sort of, you know, really lived a tough life of penitence. Yes. And they were the ones who worked so hard for the evangelization sure. of Ireland and the rest of Europe. Yes, yeah. You know, so, but it, it, this is not going to be successful uh, for, to get new vocations if it's, well, this is a nice way of life and things will be okay and sure. be easy. No, no, it, it, it has to be that commitment to Christ Very and much. a simplicity of life yes. that will be the, the re-energizing right. of these, you know, Catholic countries. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's a whole institutional crisis, this circularism. Uh, so, yeah, it's very difficult at the moment. And they, again, they, the church went through its own crisis in Ireland very, very much also, the way yes. that was handled. Um, you know, we paid a very high price for all of that. Yes. Yes. What, that, that's, I, I think, another factor. Though I, we saw in the United States that uh, during some of the darkest days of the priest abuse crisis, a lot of men were stepping up and entering in some, in some seminaries were very full. Yeah. And a lot of vocations because they recognized that we can step in here. Do you sense that in a place like Ireland? I think not under the present structures. Mm -hmm. I think something has to give, and I think we have to recreate, reimagine of how a presence in a country like Ireland in a circularized world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the present structures are not serving the community, and people don't find them, you know. Are, the people are still very spiritual. Many people will claim they're Catholic, but again, they're not mass going, and they say they do not want to belong to any institution. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. really think we have to recreate, reimagine how to re-evangelize yes. Europe in general, yes. Uh, that'll take a lot of prayer. Yes, absolutely. A lot of prayer. And, you know, settle, and, and penance for past sins, but, um, you know, prayer. And, you know, one of the things uh, uh, about the missionary work here, um, this was certainly part of, uh, you know, the missionary work of some of the European priests. Uh, when I was still a little boy, my my grandparents especially liked going to a parish where the priest would speak Polish. They, you know, mass was in Latin, of course, but they wanted the sermon in the language they were comfortable with. Sure. It strikes me that one of the goals of there being 
uh, African-American uh, clergy is that this would also be you know, men who have an experience that other African-Americans can have an immediate sharing. You know, again, a, a Polish priest yes. was someone, he understands the way we think, um, you know, and that we, they could relate to that um, in, my, in my family. Um, you know, I would think that that would be the case uh, for African-Americans that folks who come from experiences of bigotry and yeah. other struggles, et cetera, they would have a, an instinct, you know, to say, yeah, I, I resonate. Yes, I think so. I think it would apply to many minority groups. Yeah. And precisely because what you're saying, because they, they have lived in their own skin, the prejudices, everything that went on. And so somebody from their own culture would obviously understand that better than anybody else sure. and be able to relate with it. That's very true. And yeah. I think there's no, you know, that's, there's no substitute for that where right. it's possible, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that uh, the, the gospel has this objective truth to it. And yet the way that we explain what the gospel says in, you know, forms that folks resonate with is very important. It is. And I think the onus is on us missionaries and foreigners when we come to the country, when we, to any country, any mission country, uh, when we come down southward, how we become enculturated into the local culture, mm -hmm. how we understand from people's perspective. And that can be very difficult, and especially if we tend to come that we already know it all, that we've had our training and I come to, you know, I, I just come to evangelize. I think that can be a major mistake. Things happened to me a little bit in Ecuador and I had to get a, a rude awakening. <laughs> but, it, but it's very true. If we don't appreciate that and become enculturated into where we have been sent, it, we're in for some serious trouble. Yeah, th this is something, because uh, I worked down in Peru, and part of that enculturation for someone who is not of that culture is trying to sit back and recognize in these other cultural forms, there's a basic humanity that I share, but you know, sometimes these folks express it differently yeah. than I would ever think of. And it takes me time to make sure I understand what that humanity is in their expression of it. It's true, but I think sometimes they have to help you to take away the outer layers to get down to your own humanity mm -hmm. first. I, when I went to Ecuador, I was fired up on high theology. I was raring to go. Eventually, I was going to change and have my own little patch of ground going to change all these pagans and convert them in in Ecuador and I went up, I was, my first mission was the Aborigines in the Andean mountains. And I was firing up this, all the theology I had learned for so many years. And after two or three years, an elderly man, catechist came to me, says, Father Mike. I says, yes. He says, you give great sermons, Father. Oh, I felt myself getting bigger and feeling good. 
And then he went on to say, but we don't understand a word you're talking about. I says, what do you mean? Oh, Father, that's not important. I says, it's very important. I spent many years studying for, no, Father, that says that isn't the most important at all. And I says, I don't understand where you're going. And he says, Father, what's important to us is when you accept this plate of food that we prepare for you from our poverty and you have it here with us. What's important to us is when you come here with your rucksack on your back and you sleep over in the mountains and you take on our way of life. He says, Father, that speaks to us. Nothing you can say speaks louder than that. And it was like somebody pulling a rug from under my feet. My whole cosmovision began to change. You know, and they, they had to strip me down to that level. And re- I, I have to honestly say I discovered what breaking bread meant thanks to them. Yeah. I discovered what priesthood meant to me. I thought I knew it all after leaving the seminary. I learned through them what priesthood meant and what breaking. It's, I cherish it today, a beautiful. But they had to, they slowly and beautifully, you know, took away the outer layers of pride, of arrogance, and to a level, and oh my God, to show, bear my own soul and, and show me what was important in, in my own ministry. And it's, you know, I will never, ever forget them for it. It's just the greatest lesson I learned. The God I went to preach, I was preaching to them, was an abstract, distant God. They revealed to me a God that was tangible, present, personable. I, I, I'd never learned all of that, I have to, I'm sorry to say, in the seminary. I had to go there to discover. And I, I, that's why I say it's my first love. I could never forget that. You remind me of a French saying that this might be a problem so difficult even a newly ordained priest doesn't have an answer. <laughs> God help us, yeah. And I think that, you know, sometimes we, we do come out with this theory. and Firing on all cylinders yes, and think we have it. But, you know, we're firing up a tank Absolutely. when we really need a bicycle to go and hang out with folks. Well, little did I think the ones that I thought I was going to convert they were the ones who helped me with my conversion. Sure. It's still ongoing, I believe. I would say that's true for I have any to tell decent you Christian. A story of a, when I was say I knew Bishop Parks when he was I was in the diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, when he was bishop there, mm-hmm. and then later he became bishop where he is today in Saint Petersburg. So as provincial superior, I got a call one day from him. I hope he won't mind me sharing it with. So Too late, go he, ahead. He invited me to Tampa and he shared with me, says Father Mike, he knew, knows about our commitment to the African-American community and our history in the south of the country. And he said he had a parish in downtown Tampa, African-American parishes. I believe it's one of only two, if I'm correct, in the diocese of um, St. Petersburg had been vacant for seven months without a priest and he had difficulties finding a priest to go there. And he asked me as an order, would we think about it, look at it? And I said, Bishop, I I certainly will think about it. I'll consult and we'll 
So I went to the parish with one or two of our councillors another day. We spoke with some people and it had its difficulties, so a lot had gone on in its recent history. And maybe about two months later, I was in Tampa again. I called Bishop Parks and we got together and he says, Father Mike, did you make a decision? And I says, Bishop, we did. And I think the poor man, he, he sat down and he was afraid of what I might be saying. And he says, what did you decide? And I says, Bishop, of course we're taking the parish. That's what we do. And just the sigh of relief on the man's face was, I can still remember it. He was so, yeah. so grateful. And why I tell the story is that the pastor that went there, the people, it's not a territorial parish because it's a long, long history of being an African-American parish. People have come back to it from all over Tampa. And not only do they come for Sunday Eucharist and worship, but lunch goes on for hours after sure. mass. The whole, the fraternity, it's something to be experienced. The, the, the joy, the celebration. And I just think it, it's, it's just beautiful. That's, and that's what we love to do, where, where we can do it. And it's, a, it's really a joy to be in that parish on a Sunday for worship. And I, I think for us, you know, like Pope St. John Paul had said, we don't have a white church, we don't have a black church. It's one Catholic church. Yes. And all of us should be as free to go and celebrate with one another and, and yet also have a sense of comfort with our cultural expressions and the rich variety that makes the whole church better, but also have that sense that everyone is welcome Absolutely. and that we all belong to the one same church. Yes. I just again want to encourage you to go check out the work of the Southern Province of the Society of the Divine Word by going to divineword-uss.org. Father Mike, thank you very much for being with us tonight. If you join me in giving a blessing, sure. may Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you the Father, Son, the Holy Son, Spirit. and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we can bring you Father Mike and all of our other guests and all the other programs in the network only because the network is brought to you by you. And this was how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have this start. So we depend on you to please keep us in between your gas bill your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you.